Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Am I loud enough, by the way? Okay, I just want to make sure because I'm surrounded by fans up here, so I can't, I can't hardly hear anything here, but I want to make sure you guys can hear me okay out there. So here's a question. What was the biggest fear you had as a kid? Now, don't answer that out loud, please. Perhaps it was the Halloween season. It got to you. Or maybe as a kid you saw something on TV you shouldn't have. I remember one night in my bedroom, as a little guy, the shadows on the wall seemed to form the giant face of Vincent Price. And it kept me up for most of the night. I remember that night very vividly because I was terrified. I thought giant Vincent Price was out to get me. Well, some fears only last for a night. Others have a way of eating away at us and rendering us paralyzed or ineffective for years, maybe even a lifetime. The Thessalonians knew what it felt like to live with fear. They thought they had missed the rapture and that the great and terrible day of the Lord had finally come and that God had officially began to start pouring out his final wrath upon sinful mankind. And somehow they were still here. They didn't miss that. And so they were already suffering intense persecution. Now they had this fate worse than death to look forward to, followed by death itself. So they were terrified. They were afraid. And who wouldn't be? And so in a spirit of comfort and correction, Paul determined to write this letter to help quiet their hearts and to bring peace to their troubled minds. Chapter 1 is all about one thing. What is it? Chapter 1. Anyone remember? Oh, please, don't break my heart this morning. Comfort, that's right. That's right, comfort. And chapter 2 is all about confusion. Confusion. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, I don't want you to be alarmed. He says, I don't want you to be disturbed. I don't want you to be confused. He says, someone has come along, taken your mind, and shaken it up like an etch-a-sketch. Someone has, has shaken you up and shifted you around so much to the point now that you are an emotional train wreck because you have forgotten the clear instruction that I gave you when I was with you. So let me set the record straight. And he then goes on to explain how They couldn't possibly be in the day of the Lord because there are a few things that must happen first in order for that to happen, in order for the day of the Lord to come, and those things haven't happened yet. He then writes about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, who will come with all the power of Satan to establish himself as a false god and a false messiah. This man is the ultimate culmination of mankind's wickedness and the supreme expression of the evil that is already at work even now. He is the worst. He is the worst of the worst. And look at how easily, though, he is vanquished when the real Christ shows up there in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The final Antichrist is devastated, and he is destroyed And all that Jesus has to do is open his mouth and breathe. He doesn't have to lift a finger. He doesn't have to exert any effort whatsoever. He just opens his mouth and he says a word. And the most powerful man on earth is brought to nothing. So Paul says, relax. Relax. The Antichrist, he hasn't even been revealed yet. 
So stop worrying about being in the great tribulation. You didn't miss the rapture, so don't be afraid. And as we will see in chapter 3, their fear had paralyzed them and so altered their thinking that some of them had even quit their jobs to become lazy bums. And that makes sense to a degree after all, doesn't it? I mean, why, why go to work? What's the point? If God is already beginning to pour out his wrath upon mankind and the end has come and you are a part of that, why go to your job? What's the point? Well, with so much confusion and correction in chapter 2, Paul decides to end the center section on a high note, on a very high note. In fact, he goes as high as anyone could possibly go with a final exhortation to stand firm. And he does so with two things, a praise and a prayer. The praise begins in verse 13, and the prayer begins in verse 17. In both of these expressions, in both of them, he frames the command to stand with the most encouraging truth that we will find in all of Scripture. It doesn't get better than what we're going to look at this morning. I mean, this isn't just a powerhouse passage. This is the whole power plant, okay? This isn't, this isn't a light brunch of doctrine. This is a big boy's buffet that we're looking at this morning. You will not find a more comforting, more encouraging, more uplifting body of truth than the verses that we are about to look at this morning. That's quite a build-up, isn't it? But it's true. It's true. These verses contain the theology of salvation. The theology of salvation. So let's look at the text. Finishing out chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved in the Lord, Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The title of this morning's message is, Thank God, the Believer's Security. I can't think of a more encouraging way for Paul to finish out this section than to remind the Thessalonians of the security of their salvation. I'm going to divide this passage a little differently this morning. Instead of starting at the beginning and walking through from left to right, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, as we normally do, I want to start in the middle with verse 15. Verse 15 contains the command. It issues our marching orders with this imperative to stand firm and hold on. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. He says, stand firm and hold on. In other words, don't let go. Plant your feet in the ground. Take a stand and don't waver. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. Now, we need to be careful when we approach this word traditions. We don't just assume we understand what he's talking about here. Because Paul is not referring to the Catholic Church. And he's certainly not referring to any show tune found in Filler in the Roof. Okay? Tradition here has a completely different meaning than how we like to to look at it or assign meaning to it. The word here in the Greek, it simply means things handed down. Things handed down. That's all it means. So Paul is saying, stand firm and hold on to the things handed down by us. 
whether by spoken word or letter. So in other words, hold on to the New Testament. Hold on to the new revelatory truth that has come since the advent of Christ. The things spoken here, these God the Spirit saw fit to preserve for our benefit, and they are found in the four Gospels and Acts, the things that were spoken. The things written are found in the Apostles. So he's talking about the New Testament. The Apostles were God's spokesmen. If it came from them, it came from God. So hold on to their sacred trust. Hold on to that good deposit that they left and that they put and planted inside of you. Hold on to that. Don't let go and stand firm. We start there this morning because everything else, everything else that we're going to look at, all of the surrounding verses, the, the surrounding phrases and clauses, the, everything that, that encompasses that command enforces that mandate. Do you want to stand firm, feet planted, immovable, consistent, and reliable? Then here are five reasons to stand firm in the face of evil. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Five reasons to stand firm in the face of evil. And not just evil, like the persecution that the Thessalonians face, but spiritual doubt, anxiety, and fear. For me, the most paralyzing fear that I had growing up, more terrifying than giant Vincent Price on the wall. Okay, The most terrifying fear I had as a kid was this dread that I might not make it to heaven, even though I was saved. Has anyone here ever had that fear? That you might not make it to heaven, even though you've accepted Christ, even though you've raised your hand, signed a card, walked an aisle, said a prayer, got dunked in some water, whatever. But you still have these questions, you still have these doubts, you still wonder, what if, what if? What if it either didn't take? What if it's not genuine? What if I'm lying to myself? Or what about the sin that I still carry around? What about the desires that I still have? Well, unfortunately, that's not an uncommon fear to have, that you might not make it to heaven even though you are saved. There are churches out there, pastors out there, who believe that if you die in a state of sin, you go straight to hell. If you have unconfessed sin, habitual sin, if you die while committing an act of sin, straight to hell. And friends, that is a terrifying way to live. That is a terrifying way to live. I mean, if that's your theology this morning, and if that's your understanding of how salvation works, I really hope you don't break the speed limit on your way home from church this afternoon. Because if you do, and somebody hits you, and you die breaking the law of the land, then guess what? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. Well, thankfully, that's not how it works. As I mentioned earlier, these verses contain the theology of salvation. So if you want to know, how do we get saved? How do we know if we are saved? When does salvation begin? How does salvation begin? What does salvation look like? The Bible answers these questions all over the place. But here we have a rapid-fire summary, a Cliff Notes version of salvation's theology. It's all here, folks. And it's been neatly packed into these five reasons here to stand firm in the face of evil. So let's look at them together. First of all, we see that the elect are cherished. The elect, those who are children of God, are cherished. In verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Paul begins with a cause for continual praise. He said we should always be praising God. We should always be thanking Him for you, brothers. He's, I want to camp out for a moment on that word, brothers. Because it carries wonderful implications. First of all, it implies a common nature. A common nature. 
Immediate family members carry a, a similar bond. And they often share little idiosyncrasies and character traits. When two sisters are standing next to each other side by side, they may be completely different people, they may look like completely different people, but you can often tell that they're related without having to ask, can't you? By the way they look or the things they say or the things they do, well, spiritually, the same can be said for believers because we are all partakers of the same divine nature. Because as 1 Peter 1.3 says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our brotherhood is more than learning to live with each other. We have a distinct unity in the essence of what ties us together. We have a common nature, a spiritual nature. But we also have a common experience, a common experience. Earthly brothers have the same parents, the same house, the same food, the same privileges, and the same can be said for the family of God. We are not the same, but our experiences as believers hold more in common than not. Because the same spirit is at work in all of us. Well, thirdly, brothers implies a common love. A common love. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your what? Your arrogance? Your self-righteous attitude? Your political activism? No, he said, by your love. Your love for one another. A common critique of churches and Christians is that we don't love like we should. And maybe that's true. But I would argue that Christians love a lot more than most. And those within the church who often make such statements, so many of them, I would say, are judging the state of what's going on around them by the state of their own heart. Because typically, those who love the saints and are, and are giving sacrificially and are considering and counting the needs of others above their own, those who actually love the saints are often the ones that are found to be loved by the saints. And those who don't, are often lacking in the love that they blame others for not giving them. So church, brothers and sisters in Christ can't help but love each other. And if we all loved in the way that we should, there would be no room for a false accusation. There would be no room for anyone to point the finger and say, well, ha ha, see Christian? But we all have it. The question is, to what extent are we going to employ it? Because there is just one. There is one nature, one experience, and there is also one common love that we should all have because of our union with Christ. And that union manifests itself in love and communion for everyone who, as our text says, is beloved by the Lord. Well, finally, brothers implies a common father. A common father. We all share divine parentage. Again, every born-again believer in Christ has the right to say, Our Father who is in heaven, because He is our common ground. He is our mutual meeting place. My heart has a direct line to His heart. And so does yours. Because we have the same Father, we have the same love, and that love is shared equally. We may not love each other equally, but the Father's love for me is the same love that he has for you and the person next to you, without variation. All of the elect are infinitely cherished by God. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. We sang a number of songs this morning concerning the love of God. But we could never write a song good enough to really fully capture that expression. If God is your father and you have been adopted into his divine family, he has loved you since before the beginning. He didn't start loving you when you came to saving faith. He doesn't love you more today and less tomorrow. And he won't take back his love regardless of how bad you mess things up. 
Friends, if you are one of God's children, you are loved by God. It's a fact. And this truth flows into the next reason that we see here in our text, to stand firm in the face of evil. Number two, the elect are chosen. The elect are chosen. Look at what he says next there in verse 13. Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. I really hope that you get that today. That God chose you. You didn't choose him in order to be saved. He chose you. This doctrine of election is not an invention of the Reformation or neo-Calvinist hipsters. It is a biblical fact. Throughout the entire New Testament, the church is often referred to as the elect. In Mark 13, 20, Jesus said, But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. He also said in Luke eighteen seven, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Paul begs the question in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, who is going to enter into heaven and convince God to take your salvation away? No one. No one can do that. Peter addresses his first letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Titus 1.1 tells us that the letter was written for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Which, which accords with godliness. John refers to believers as the elect in his writings as well. So God has an elect. That's not something we can just ignore. That's not a part of scripture that we can just push to the side and say, no, 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 that doesn't fit my theology. God has an elect that he has set aside for himself. Not everyone is going to be saved. Not everyone is going to confess Christ as Lord. Only those whom the Father has chosen. Matthew twenty two fourteen. How clear can you get? For many are called, but few are chosen. Or consider Colossians three twelve. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Or as our text says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. I'm not sure why the ESV decided to throw that word first fruits in here, because I find it somewhat confusing. Because in the Greek it simply means in the beginning. In the beginning. So in the beginning, God chose you to be saved. That's what this verse is saying. Let that sink in for a moment. Salvation begins with the love of God when in eternity past, he chose, he decided to set his love upon you. This is long before you were born. This is long before you messed things up, long before men and dinosaurs. Back when it was just God and God alone, he loved you and he chose you. For salvation. Concerning the beast, the final Antichrist, Revelation 13 8 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now, don't miss this. This is so important. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if you are one of God's elect, then your name was written down long before the foundations of the earth were laid, long before this earth, this world, was made. God wrote your name in a book. He loved you and chose you from the beginning for salvation. And he expressed that love in the greatest way possible by becoming a man and suffering greater than any man for the sake of redeeming those whom the Father has chosen. He became a baby. He was bullied, mocked, and ridiculed. He never sinned. And he became a perfect sacrifice or substitute for your sin. He was executed on a cross for you. 
2,000 years before you were born, before you were a thought in your great, 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 however many great grandfathers' eyes or minds or whatever, before you were ever conceived, before there was ever even an imagination that you could exist, 2,000 years before you were born, God the Son suffered the full wrath of a holy God for you. And he did it to pay for your sins, to achieve salvation for you. Not just make salvation possible for you to then achieve something of salvation for yourself. That's not why he died. He died to accomplish the mission, to accomplish and achieve salvation for you. Salvation, God's loving and choosing us, is not something that any of us earn or deserve. You can't buy it, you can't choose it, and you can't lose it. All you can do is ask for it. That's all you can do, is ask for it and receive it as the free gift that God has made it to be. Because he has determined long before the world began that he would set his love upon you and send his son to die in your place. And this is something that, again, he has not done for everyone, but for those whose names are written in the book. But even in that text we just saw in Revelation, there are those whose names are not written in the book. There are those who will say on that day, Lord, Lord. There are those who, as we saw in chapter 1, will suffer the agony of destruction away from his presence and away from the glory of his might. And yet, not one drop of the Savior's blood will have been shed in vain. He will have the prize for which he died. He will redeem every name in the book. He will receive maximum glory. And he will save all whom the Father has given him. Amen? Well, that's number two. God's elect are chosen. The third reason to stand firm in the face of evil is that the elect are changed. The elect are changed. Look at the rest of verse 13. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Salvation changes you. Salvation has a profound effect on who you are and what you do. When the love of God who chose you in eternity past applies the work of Christ, his life, death, burial, and ascension to you at the proper time, when that happens, you become what the Bible calls regenerated. Regenerated, meaning that you are spiritually born again. You have become a new creature, a new creation in Christ, and you are no longer enslaved by sin, forced to obey its every desire. And that changing work of salvation manifests itself in two components. Two components that are listed here in the text. For the first component, he says, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification by the Spirit. That's the divine side of things. These two components, we're going to look at the divine side and we're going to look at the human side. The divine side is sanctification by the Spirit. You say, Hans, that's nice, but what does that mean? Well, sanctification means set apart or separated. So to be sanctified by the Spirit means to be supernaturally separated from sin. In other words, the old man dies once the new man is born. That doesn't mean that you won't ever sin again, but it does mean that there is a new inner man that has been created inside of you. One that has God's divine nature with new desires and longings to please Him. Saved people are changed people. Are they perfect? No. Do they still fall for the lies of sin? Yes. 
but the Spirit detaches your inner man from sin so that you could be holy, so that inner man can be holy and fit for heaven, whether you die breaking the speed limit or not. And whereas before you had no desire to please God whatsoever, now you want to. Now you do have the desire to please God. That's the divine side. And this is something that the Spirit of God does for you. He does this for you. For the human side, he says, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. If you want to be saved, you must believe in the truth. Romans ten nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. That's a human response. You must believe the truth. But even that human response, it has its origins where? Where does it come from? That's right, it comes from God. Because our faith is a gift, Ephesians 2.8. It is God who causes us to will and to act, to want and to do, according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. So when we say that salvation is a gift from God and that it's all of grace, we should mean that. We should believe that in our hearts. We shouldn't just say that because it sounds humble. We shouldn't just say, oh, you know, it's all of grace. God did it all. Jesus is the one who has made a way. And he's not only made a way, he has, he has pulled me along. And he has, he has changed my heart. And he has done it all. We, we, should, we should truly believe that, folks. Let's not be prideful. Because there is no room for pride at the cross. It has been said that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And that is so true. So true. Because Jesus did pay it all. And all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And he cherishes us so much that he chose us from the beginning to be saved and miraculously changed through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Salvation is not a decision to just try Jesus out for a while. It is a supernatural transformation that ultimately results from God's loving and choosing you. That's number three. God's elect are cherished, chosen, and changed. Number four, another reason to stand firm in the face of evil is that God's elect are called. God's elect are called. Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this a few weeks ago at the close of chapter one. This call of God is the overwhelming, irresistible call that always results in salvation. Theologians refer to it as the effectual or saving call as opposed to the general call, which is an open invitation for anyone to come and believe. Jesus referred to this effectual call when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, Paul isn't concerned about the ordering of events here in the text because the calling comes before the change, but he includes it here because it is still very important. It is still a crucial aspect of God's determining and saving you. Notice that this efficacious call takes place through the gospel. It takes place through the gospel there in the text. And Paul loves this gospel so much, he calls it his. He says, to this he called you through our gospel. He owns it. 
He says, this gospel belongs to me, and this gospel belongs to you. And to wrap it all up, look at the reason he gives for this divine calling. He says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is astonishing. This is believable, but it falls into that realm of just mind blown. Lord, help me to believe this. Help me to understand it. Because basically what he's saying here is that the entire process of what we just looked at, of God's cherishing, choosing, calling, and changing you, the entire process is ultimately culminating into your glory. That's huge. So that you may have the glory of Christ. He loved you for glory. He chose you from the beginning for glory. He called you through the gospel for glory. And he, and he changed you by his spirit through sanctification and belief for glory. In eternity past, God said, I choose them to be glorified. This is one of the most encouraging praises I've ever read. I mean, thank God for this, right? Thank God for these truths indeed. When it comes to my salvation, I can't earn this thing. I didn't start this thing, and I most certainly can't finish it. God determined the ending before there ever was a beginning. So if this is true for me, as it, as it was for the Thessalonians, and if I can encourage you with these inspired words of truth, then friends, what could we possibly have to be afraid of? What do we have to be afraid of? The believer's salvation is secure. It has been anchored in the mightiest rock. It has been promised in the purest truth. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold on tightly to that which was passed down by the apostles, the word of God. That's the praise part of today's passage. He concludes this section now with a prayer. And there we see this fifth and final reason to stand firm in the face of evil. He says, God's elect are comforted. Comforted. Closing the chapter, look at verses 16 and 17. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself... And God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Notice if we remove the qualifiers here in these verses, that there is a wish at the center of this prayer. And that wish is simply, now may our Lord comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Much like the prayer that he closed chapter 1 with, this is a good prayer. This is a fantastic prayer. Comfort and correction are the themes of the letter. So for Paul to request that God would bless their hearts with comfort and consistency in both their doctrine and their duty, it is a tremendously appropriate prayer for closing out this section. But let's focus on the qualifiers. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Similar to Paul's ownership of the gospel, I I love the ownership that we see here of Paul and his Savior. He is Jesus, our Lord, and God, our Father. And the source of our comfort should lie in the fact that Jesus is ours. He's ours. Paul includes this seemingly unnecessary word, himself, to draw our attention to the fact that he himself, Jesus, our Savior, his person, is ours. Not just his obedience to the Father and redemption, not just his acts, his purity and his love, but him. He has given himself to us. And what a comfort that is. Here we have 
the love of God in both. The Father loves us so much, He sent the Son to suffer in our place. And the Son loves us so much, He came to lay down His life for His sheep. And look at what He gave us, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Eternal comfort, that's a good gift. What do you think? Eternal comfort, everlasting encouragement in the form of pardoned sin and acceptance in Christ. I love how Charles Spurgeon described this fundamental truth. He wrote, The Christian knows that God looks upon him as he is in Christ. And inasmuch as God put Christ in his place and punished Christ for his sin, now he puts the believer into Christ's place and rewards that believer with his love, just as if he had been obedient unto death as Christ was. Church, when the Christian knows that, he has an eternal comfort. He has a good hope. He has the best hope imaginable that can only be achieved through grace. Well, you might say, Hans, I'm not worthy of such a gift, to which I would say, join the club. None of us are. None of us are worthy of such a thing. We were all born in sin, we live in sin, and someday we will all die in sin. Salvation is a gift. So how do we receive it? And how do we know that we have it? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How do we receive it? And how do we know we have it? Well, you receive it the way that you would any other gift. As I mentioned earlier, you simply ask for it. You ask for it. Ask for the salvation that is described here in this text and throughout the rest of the New Testament. Ask for your inner man to be changed through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Ask him to replace your desires for sin with desires for holiness. You can't believe unless you are cherished, chosen, and called. So ask him, ask him to do that for you. Ask him to increase your faith and fill your heart with love that compels you to live for the sake of pleasing him. If God is producing this work in you, if he calls you to change you, then respond, believe, repent, and obey. Or as Jesus put it, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He also said, all, all that the Father gives me, everyone, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never cast you out. So come to Jesus as one cherished, chosen, and called, and thank him for the tremendous love that he has demonstrated towards you in bringing you to a place of faith and grace. Because if that is true for you, then everything else described here in this text, everything else on this page is true for you as well. That is how you get saved. You received the gift. You receive it wholeheartedly, full of faith and love that can only come from God. So how do you know? How do you know then if you've really received it or not? I've been asked this question a number of times. I was asked this question just this week, even. How do you know if you're really saved? You know, I've believed. I've even seen some change in my life. Not much, but some. However, I give in to sin too easily. I want to change. I want to grow in holiness. But I keep making these terrible decisions. Ah, how do I know? How do I know if I'm saved? Well, I think most of us, even the elect, will wrestle with thoughts like these from time to time. And it might surprise you to hear me say this, especially in the middle of preaching a sermon on the believer's security, but when those thoughts come to us, we shouldn't ignore them. We shouldn't push them aside. We shouldn't suppress them with our knowledge of the truth, okay? 
Because self-examination and questioning to see whether you are truly in the faith or not is a good thing. It's a good thing. That's why we have 1 John. That's why we have so much of the New Testament provided for us. We should question ourselves. We should continually ask those questions and say, are, are we really in the faith or not? Am I in the faith? That's a good thing. But as you look into the mirror of Scripture, so as not to fall into despair, I want to give you two considerations. Two considerations that will help you determine whether or not you are really saved. And I encourage you to write these things down. You won't find them in your outline, but I promise you, when you find yourself shaken in mind and alarmed, these are good reminders to hold on to, good things to to reach for when you need that encouragement. How do I know that this secure salvation applies to me? It all comes down to two aspects of your life, and the first is affection. Affection. What do you love, and what are your desires? Do you desire to know and love God? Do you desire for him to know and love you? Do you desire to please him, to obey him, to share in his suffering now so that one day you can share in his glory? These are all excellent questions to ask because they reveal your affection. They reveal the the temperature of your heart. You say, but I struggle with my sin. Well, sure, we all do. Until we are finally like him because we see him, we are going to keep limping around in this body of death, this body of sin and decay. But the fact that you are sensitive and struggling is a good thing. It's a good thing. You know, the thing to remember here is that unbelievers, they aren't at war with their flesh. You know, they don't struggle with sin like the believer does. The the unbeliever, his desires and actions are in sinful harmony with each other. And living to please God is not even on the radar. It's not even on the map. So the fact that you are struggling is a good sign. So long as you actually are struggling because... You are tied to your flesh, and God's Spirit within you wants obedience and holiness that leads to life. That desire is evidence of God's work in your heart. Those who have not been regenerated, they have no desire for these things. So if you have these desires, if you have these affections, that is a good, good sign. Unbelievers live for one person, and one person only, themselves. So that's the first. That is the first aspect of your life worth considering. Number two, the second aspect is your direction, your affection, and your direction. Where are you going, and where have you been? Are you the same person that you were since before you believed, confessed, and repented? Has the change of salvation manifested itself in any noticeable way in your life? Now granted, some people will produce much fruit. Some people will produce very little, microscopic even, something that requires the aid of lenses in order to, in order to detect. But have you been changed And are you changing? Are you moving in that direction? Are the affections of your heart propelling you towards being more Christ-like, towards godliness, because you are being driven by love and care from the Father? Has the change of salvation manifested itself in any noticeable way? Because, friends, if God has begun a work in you, you better believe he will see it through to completion. We enjoy the most assurance The most assurance of our salvation when we are loving God, worshiping God, serving God, obeying God, and praying to God. Last year we saw in 2 Peter 1 a clear way to know. How do you make his calling and choosing you, or as the ESV puts it, his calling and election sure? In other words, how can you be sure of your salvation? Well, the answer was right there in the text. Be diligent and make every effort to supplement your faith with godliness. That's not to change God's mind on the matter. That's to help you. 
to help you know that you know that you're saved, to give you that peace and that comfort that you need, that security in knowing that your salvation has been bought and paid for for you. So diligently supply all godliness to your faith. There are two paths in life. One leads to godliness and the other leads to wickedness. The spirit wants godliness and your flesh wants wickedness. The unbelieving fool sides with their flesh all of the time. Because that's the only path they can take. But the believer, the believer in Christ, his elect, who has been cherished by God, chosen by God, called by God, changed by God, and comforted by God, that undeserving recipient of grace will be carried by God until they are finally glorified with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we are just overwhelmed by the immensity of your love towards us. And how you have chosen to manifest that, Lord, again, these truths should have a profound impact on every single person here who believes. To know that we have been chosen, that we have been called, and that all of that has come from your love for us. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, in the very beginning, you wrote our name in a book. You determined to save Hans Kaufman and so many other believers here in the room. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever take this gift lightly, that we would never even be tempted to abuse your grace, that we would instead just humbly fall upon our knees and worship you and thank you for the goodness that you have provided for us, for all of your blessing and all of your provision, for all of your love. Lord, it is a profound and a heavy and a weighty truth that we have looked at this morning. But Lord, you have given it to us for the sake of glory and comfort. So I pray that our hearts would be comforted. I pray that our spirits would be lifted. That as we are tempted to focus on our failures and focus on our sin and all of the times that we trespass against you and your holiness, Lord, that we would hate our sin as you do, yes. That we would continually seek repentance and confession and that we would continually bring these things to you, yes, in a right and proper manner. But Lord, I also pray that we would not be condemned by them because you have paid it all. And you did not just determine these things in eternity past in order to make salvation possible for us one day. You determined these things so that we could be glorified with you. You had the end in mind before there ever was a beginning. And I pray that that truth would strengthen us, that we would not live in fear, that we would not be afraid of of our salvation, of of not knowing whether we're truly saved or not, but that we would have a holy confidence in knowing that we are because our affections and our direction is aligned with you, because you have changed us, because that change is visible in our hearts and in our lives, because you haven't just redeemed us in order to one day set us aside. You're You're not scouring the earth and just picking out the few people that you like Lord, you determined to set your love on us for an end goal from the beginning. And we know that whatever you determine will happen. That no one, no one can bring a charge against your elect. No one can change your mind. No one could, could ever come between us and the salvation that you have already applied to our lives. That you have already begun. This work inside of us, Lord, we know that you will see it through to the very end. So, Lord, I pray that everyone here this morning, if there's anyone, any believer 
who is shaken in mind, who is distressed, who is fearful, who is anxious, who doesn't know, who is confused, who, who just is, is hoping and grasping for some solid ground to stand on, I pray that you would give them an honest evaluation of their standing before you. I pray that you would move and direct in their hearts, that you would bring them around to really examine your truth, to study your word. I pray that they would run towards conviction and not away from it. I pray that they would grow in your grace, that they would grow in your knowledge, and that they would be miraculously and gloriously changed to a point where there is no question that they would have that comfort and that, and that security that you have already provided for them in your salvation. Give that to them, Lord. And for anyone here who may not be a believer, Lord, again, I just pray that you would soften hearts this morning. I pray that today would be the proper time that they would be brought to saving faith, that they would be sanctified by your Spirit and through belief in the truth. Lord, call them out of darkness. Rip the blinders off of their eyes. Unstop their ears so they can hear and open up their minds to receive this truth. Call them, Lord. Show them the wonders of your ways. Bring them, Lord, into beautiful, fulfilled fellowship with you and give them that hope, that glorious hope that we can only have in you. Call them out of darkness, Lord. And I pray that they would not harden their heart against this truth, that they would not firmly plant their feet in the sands of unbelief, but instead they would find themselves on sure footing in the rock of your grace. Because, Lord, you have done all of these things for us. Thank you again. Thank you, Lord, so much for this theology of salvation. Thank you for making it all an act of grace. Lord, I couldn't start this. I can't finish it. And Lord, you know that if it were up to me, I would lose it. But Lord, you are so faithful. You are so faithful in saving me and for saving this church and for bringing us into your, into your, your family, into this combined brotherhood. I pray that we would live and walk in a manner worthy of that calling. In everything that we do, we give you thanks and we give you praise. In your name, amen.